Welcome to Feeling Asian, a podcast where two Asians talk about their feelings. I'm Young Me Mayor. And I'm Brian Park. And we've given you a little Feeling Asian remix here. <laughs> we, have a, we have a special episode. It's not just one guest. It's two guests. <laughs> that are, Multiple guests. <laughs> yes, and they are very smart. They're experts. <laughs> Finally, somebody that knows stuff, unlike us, who just sort of go w- with our feelings. I'm always like, so true, I feel like so I've true. seen a tweet about this, and now I'm going to talk about it like I'm an expert. But today we have actual experts. Actual experts. No, I mean, we uh, we love doing these episodes. Uh, it's partially inspired by our therapist episode, where... Yeah. You know, we we had a roundup of mental health professionals and asked them to speak about their experiences. And we thought we'd, uh, you know, incorporate that and do that again. But this time, explore Asian American history. Historical events of of Asians (laughs) that we might not know even as Asians ourselves. Like we said up top, this episode is a little bit different from our usual format, but we invited two Asian American educators, and we asked them, like Young Me said, what are some topics in Asian American history that the quote unquote average Asian American might not know about might not and know. why yeah. that is? I think the why that is is very important too. And we, we learned. <laughs> we learned about things that we did not know. I mean, I, honestly, I think that the, the discussions that are brought up in this episode, I did vaguely know about them and i heard about them but it was really nice to hear you know in-depth information and it sort of blew my mind and made me really sad to hear um i think our listeners are itching to hear from the experts and uh i think let's just jump right into it So, listeners, your next guest is a sociologist in the Asian American Studies Department at San Francisco State University, and they are also the founder of the nonprofit organization Stop AAPI Hate Coalition. Everyone, please give your ears to Dr. Russell Jung. Hey, Brian. Hi, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Yay! <laughs> Yay, I'm feeling Asian. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel every day. <laughs> whether i like it or not <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for uh taking the time to speak with us dr jung um you know i always uh it's been a while since i've been in school so i find myself you know standing up straighter and putting on my thinking cap here <laughs> but uh yeah you know young me and i we formulated some questions that uh we'd love to you know get your your responses and insights into so i say we just jump right into it uh for our listeners first and foremost can you tell us a little bit about your work and classes at san francisco state university sure so we at san francisco state university have the oldest and first college of ethnic studies we're only two in the nation and so we were founded after a student strike that lasted six months Um, a student strike led by the Black Student Union and the Third World Liberation Front. And it's really developed um, at San Francisco State, the the programs of ethnic studies. We in Asian American studies teach 50 to 60 sections every semester, reaching 
Yeah, uh, over um, 2,500 students. So we range from, you know, basic classes like intro to Asian American history and intro to Asian American literature to really specific classes like Asian American sexualities, Asian Americans and environmental justice, um, Asian American religiosities. So I think oh. we're pretty developed. Um, I teach classes on environmental justice, on public policy, on community change and development, and on Chinese American identity. Um, I also teach grad classes in methodology and in um, public policy as well. So um, it's pretty developed for, so for example, for every ethnic group, such as Vietnamese, we have a literature class on Vietnamese American arts and literature, a social science class on Vietnamese Americans identities and a history class on Vietnamese American history. So oh, each wow. individual ethnic group has those specific classes as well as the pan-ethnic classes. It's amazing. Wow. And you said it was the oldest ethnic studies um, in America. How? What, when was that founded? So the strike occurred in 1968 and the students okay. won. So we founded the College of Ethnic Studies in 1969. And that's when the first Asian American studies classes were taught at San Francisco State. Um, Berkeley um, followed that semester oh. and then UCLA. So... Um, We've been around for a while now, over half a century, and wow. um, some of those student strikers are still around um, helping us teach classes. Oh, that's so amazing. And, you know, you've also authored some important studies, uh, including a book on the emergence of Asian American studies. And to piggyback off of your first question, I mean, what does enrollment look like these days in the field? So... Um, at San Francisco State, we have a robust program that's really um, heavily enrolled. We were, our, um, the previous faculty and chairs were really strategic in making all our classes meet general ed requirements. Mm. So if you have an English requirement, our classes meet the English requirement. If you have an American history classes, our, our requirement, we, our classes meet the history requirement. And mm. so, um, again, we get 50 students per class. Um, we, we fill up. Um, and now um, we're part of the California State University system. And that's mm. the largest um, university system in the world. And just recently, this past year, they made ethnic studies a graduation requirement. So mm. ethnic oh, wow. studies, like Asian American studies, will be taught on every 23 campuses. So um, that's led to the hiring of a lot more ethnic studies faculty. And then because the CSU system is requiring it, the community colleges are teaching it as well. So currently mm. there's a real push, at least in California, for ethnic studies classes and faculty. I see. Can I ask, oh, can I ask the racial makeup of your, like the people that enroll in your, in classes? Sure. For so, um, at San Francisco State, our my classes are predominantly Asian, and then they would mm -hmm. predominantly be Filipino, Chinese, and Vietnamese. Um, mm. About 10, 15% would be other groups, mostly Latinx, because um, San Francisco State were 40% Latinx. So those are right. the... Um, my, yeah. Oh, sorry to interrupt you. What percentage, this is a very important question, what percentage <laughs> of these students are weeaboos? Are we a lose? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we actually, you know, I just we just did a survey, and I think a third of our majors are mixed race. 
Mm. Okay. So, no, I was just joking. Weeaboo is like a slang term for white people that are really into Japanese culture. Ah. I'm sorry. I had to slip that joke in there. Oh, okay. We, we get one or two per listeners. class. One or two per class. And... One or two weeaboos per class. So that's in thousands, tens of thousands of them. I'm just kidding. Right. Oh, but we do have, um, again, going back to the mixed race again, a third of our majors are mixed race. Mm. And um, awesome. we have classes on mixed race Asians, and then we have oh, that's amazing. We have a, a major, uh, a minor in uh, mixed race studies as well in our college. Wow! Yeah, and I that, had no wow. idea that. SFU, yeah, yeah, we have a SFSU, we have a minor in queer ethnic studies. So we have a, yeah, we have <laughs> it's we have a lot of programs. We teach in prisons just... too, so you could go to. You could go to prison and and uh, get a certificate <laughs> well, in, in ethnic studies. That well, that's that doesn't sound like something that won't happen in my life. So that's very good to know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> it's so. always on the. You never know with me. You, yeah. I might wake up one day in prison. So uh-huh. I'll 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 <laughs> a prison in in California. I will yeah, keep that. But you'll in have mind. something to do productive in prison at least. <laughs> um. Well, I'm 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 curious. Uh, how so? How long have you been teaching at SFSU? I've been teaching for twenty years now. Okay, so compared to you know twenty years ago and the students that you teach now, would you say that there's a a, a noticeable shift in I guess the baseline understanding or knowledge that your students have, like coming in as freshmen? In regards yeah. to Asian American history, yeah, there's been a couple of demographic shifts that I could talk about. Um, when I first started, there were a lot of Chinatown students um, who were um, often um, immigrant, low income. Mm-hmm. Over time, less students came um, through Chinatowns and came from more varied locations um, throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. Um, over time, uh, their their oral presentations are a lot better. Students now are really adept at doing multimedia presentations, um, mm. you know, just because of uh, new technologies. Right. And there are two other major trends. First of all, they're really aware of their Asian American background because of the surge of anti-Asian racism. Mm-hmm. So um, it's easy to... T- it's always been easy to talk about race and racism to working class Asians in California because they feel it, they experience it, they know it. Right. Um, and so you don't have to spend all this time with talking about representations because they, right. it's not a representational issue that we're invisible. It's a concrete material issue that we're getting targeted on the public transit, or it's a material mm, issue right. that their parents face discrimination because of their accents. The right. second major trend um, has been heightened mental health concerns. Regularly, mm. um, my students talk about the, the stresses they feel, their anxieties. Um, ever since the um, 2008 recession, um, economic concerns, housing concerns, um, career concerns, racism concerns, and health concerns have really picked up. So sadly, this is a generation Gen Z who are really... Um, aware of their mental health and um and talk about it they talk about it really openly in our classes Mm. have you seen yeah have you seen a surge in um i guess 
interest in your classes among Asian students just recently, like during, you know, COVID and all of the recent spike in anti-Asian racism? Um, yeah, again, we've always had high interest in, at, right. at San Francisco State. So I think, um, yeah, again, the, the heightened interest is how do we deal with the racism? My, my students talk about not only about themselves, but their families being really fearful during the moment. They talk about mm -hmm. their grandparents um, not wanting to go out. And again, in, in California, a lot of us live in multi-generational households where we live with grandparents. And um, so my students are really attuned not only to their own mental health, but their their grandparents and their parents' mental health and well-being. So I think that's uh, a new development, um, just... Uh, a willingness to talk right. about um, all these anxieties that they hope they have. Well, we asked you on to the podcast to ask this question in particular, but we wanted to know about, um, like, what is a topic do you think that most Asian Americans are not aware of in, like, Asian American history? Yeah, the topic I thought about that a lot of people aren't aware of, and because, and I wasn't aware of, um was the number of chinese settlements that were mass displaced in the 19th century there was a large um mass dispossession by white mob violence against over 200 chinese communities and th these weren't individuals you know like there's seven you know lynchings of 17 in la these were entire communities of 200 300 people wholesale driven out by fire by bombs by shootings so it was really violent and it was very destructive yeah. um we don't hear about it because i don't think well first of all it's it's 19th century there aren't many right. records about it um most of asians come post 65 so they're not aware about it in their own family backgrounds right right but even i'm fifth generation even those of us whose families experience that type of mass dispossession, we don't know about it because Asian families don't like to talk about trauma. They don't like to talk mm. about hard things, like why relive it. Um, mm. And so they sort of move on. So, you know, again, there's all these stories of Chinatown after Chinatown getting destroyed and nobody yeah. knows about it. Nobody gets reparations for it. Chinese just move on and a lot of Chinese move back to China. So um, yeah. I could talk about my own family's experience of mass dispossession, but um, yes, I would be um, very interested to hear that. Pretty, um, you want to hear about it now? Oh yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if you don't mind sharing. Sure. And you know, again, in the 19th century, there was a the context of, of three stereotypes about Chinese. They were um, heathen pagans who were unassemblable. They were disease carrying of you know smallpox, malaria, leprosy, and they stole white workers' jobs, right? And that's mm -hmm. been a consistent fear, the yellow peril fear, even today. But because of those stereotypes, they faced Chinese exclusion, right? The Page Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, and all the mass dispossession I just talked about. So those that legislation didn't quell the violence, but actually legitimated the violence. And so um, my great great grandparents settled in Monterey Aquarium, um, Monterey, California, right by the aquarium. Mm -hmm. And 
they lived happily because there weren't any people around them. There weren't that many indigenous people until whites began to move closer to where the Chinese were fishing. And um, there again, there was so much anti-Chinese settlement sentiment then that they they voted on a state resolution to to ban Chinese immigration. And every single voter in Monterey County, except for one, voted to keep Chinese out. Mm-hmm. And surrounding cities, they had the you know um, Chinese must go rallies where they had kids parading around with placards and signs, you know, saying the Chinese must go. So all around, yeah. there was white townspeople encroachment on the Chinese settlement, and then there was broader anti-Chinese resentment and hate. Um, the Chinese in Monterey lived on Stanford University property. And so Stanford's property manager evicted them um, in 1900. The Chinese didn't leave and the townspeople Whoa. Um, wrote to the um, to Stanford and the property manager saying, get rid of the Chinese. Um, and so finally a telegram in 1906 was sent to the property manager remove the Chinese by any means necessary. It is, you know, that Malcolm X saying, by any means necessary. And the next week, a mysterious fire burned down the entire village. Mm. Yeah. And um, the firefighters gave up after an hour oh, trying to, wow. to stop the fire. The next morning, looters came and the newspapers said that crowds came to cheer the looters. And so my great-grandparents who had lived there for four decades raised to families, had a thriving business, had two homes. They lost everything that night. And and so they had to move to San Francisco, Chinatown, oh as the only place of refuge against racism. Um, Stanford University then, after the fire, they bulldozed the village into the Pacific. They fenced off the area and they stationed armed guards um, so that the Chinese couldn't return. The Chinese actually filed a class action lawsuit right. against Stanford. So think about this. Chinese immigrants filed a lawsuit against the largest property owner in California, the largest corporation. So it is a David versus Goliath lawsuit, but they, mm-hmm. they didn't win. And so again, um, my family had to, to leave. Right. Right. And what year did your great-grandparents arrive in California? They arrived in 1868 and then had to leave Monterey right. 19. Wow. I think they stayed a couple of years. Like they, they left 1908, so I think. So that's, yeah, 40 years oh. in the location. That's terrible. Yeah, I went to Stanford to pay reparations. So you know, I went I went to them to issue an apology. Yeah, they should. Right. <laughs> Yeah, there there is a oh my god the, the Stanford Marine Hopkins like Marine Reserve they 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 have a site there now. Wow! But but you know you know what's really oh you know what's really sad is you could actually go on the beach and you'll find That's little awesome. shards of um, mm-hmm. porcelain rice bowls that get washed up. It was sort of the last oh. vestiges of the Chinese settlement. Oh my settlement. god! It's just always sorry. It's making me a little emotional, but like. I don't know why I got I, I got really emotional during this episode, um, even when we spoke to our other guest. But it makes me so it, it always like takes my breath away when I think hearing these stories about Chinese Americans that have been here for so long, because it's like, um, like even today, you know, it's like we have to face 
so much discrimination, but it's just like, it just seems really ridiculous to hear that you're like fifth generation, you know, and a lot of other Americans still view Asian Americans as, you know, not really American or others or, you know, um, but your family has been here for so long. Yeah, we've been here so long. We've been excluded every generation too, right? And so yeah. all the experiences yep. that Asian Americans yeah. have faced, you know, um, mass detention at Angel Island, mass deportation, yeah. mass family separation. My family's experienced those um, types of racism that have been really institutionalized and have been policy. So, um, and that's, you know, why knowing my own background, that's why we created Stop API Heat because you want to right. prevent history mm. from reoccurring. More concretely, like, is that was that the impetus for the establishment of Stop API 8? Like, how, what was the origin story behind it? And what what is the nonprofit focusing on right now? Yeah. Um, well, again, because I teach Asian American studies and I know my own family history and I, I teach public policy. Um, I knew that whenever diseases came from Asia, that Asians get blamed and face racist violence like they did in the 19th century and they faced racist policies. And I remember right. SARS in 2003 when Asians would get harassed for coughing in public, right? And right, so, right. Um, and then seeing how deadly COVID was, um, I was just sort of alerted and aware of something might, we might be scapegoated, we might face, um, you know, shunning. And so I was just paying attention to COVID. And then when I saw more and more news accounts about business going down in Chinatowns, people getting pushed and shoved, students being quarantined for long periods and only Asian students, right? Um, I began to track the racism and there was a clear trend. So then uh, what we do in ethnic studies is we do a lot of um, community-based research, really engage with community partners. And so I reached out to um, the API Equity Alliance in LA and Chinese for Production. And we actually got over 100 organizations to call on California to start documenting the racism, right? We thought it's mm. government's responsibility to safeguard the health and safety of its residents, right? If And so of course. They, they said they didn't have the capacity. So we created um, a website in multiple languages and immediately we got, you know, inundated with reports. And so we, this is again, the community um, coming to serve the community, um, acknowledging community issues, wanting to provide voice for our community. And um, I was actually stunned by two things. One, the number of reports we got, and like, you know, we're brand new, who heard about us? But we were getting 100 reports a day from across the nation. You know, how do people in Tennessee know about us, right? And then secondly, oh I was stunned by the um, how vitriolic the hate was, how how angry people were, oh, yeah. and how much hate was being spewed towards Asians that they would spit at grandparents, right? That they would shove school kids, and um, but we've seen thousands of those incidents now, and um, that's why I wasn't surprised by the Atlanta shootings. I wasn't surprised to see elderly killed because I just figured. It's just a matter of time, you know, because people are throwing rocks and bottles at elders or, you know, stalking us. Yeah. And so, oh. um, yeah, it's, it's it's sort of sad and scary. That's really sad that you had like, you know, you're so aware of the history of this, you know, racist ideology that Asian people are disease care 
carriers and you were aware of whenever there's like an illness coming from Asia that there's going to be an uptick of these incidents that like you had so much awareness that you had like started um you know the but, coalition right away i mean hopefully looking optimistically now that you have uh this data have since the inception of this coalition has um you know has a government acknowledged this and been more proactive about uh you know implementing measures to uh mitigate this uh, anti-Asian racism? Yeah, I think because we were able to document what's happening, uh, because um, we got journalists to document, you know, really graphic incidents of elders being attacked, because, and then because oh. of the Atlanta shooting, sadly, um, we have been able to garner attention and be put on policy agendas. Um, so we at Stop API Hate have used our data to shift to policy interventions and you know, in California, mm. we've been able to secure $156 million in the API equity budget bill to, to address the hate. And New York and Massachusetts have also issued those types of equity bills. Um, 19 states have passed or have pending legislation to require Asian American studies at the K through 12 level. People don't know about this. That's oh, a wow. huge movement to get Asian American studies oh, taught. Yeah, wow. that's pretty amazing. Yeah. This is a whole grassroots movement state by state in response to the racism our communities are really standing up in california we also have um two bills now about to be signed to address um the street harassment that asians face not hate crimes but the harassment mm. which makes up the bulk of incidents right so we, we're continuing to promote policies to address the racism more comprehensively and to address it sort of in a preventative manner um, again, to educate people um, rather than just to punish people once a hate crime's already occurred. Right. It's almost like right. preventing mm -hmm. them from ever occurring. Well, that that's like very hopeful to hear that. Yeah. You know, what's really hopeful, again, is, <clears throat> is that we create Stop API Hate. We have all these traumatizing, sad events. But mm -hmm. I've been really... I've been traumatized. It's been really hard. But I, I've been heartened to see Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders across the nation really stand up, you know, school kids, faith-based groups, um, employee groups, um, all across. Right. And so, you know, um, it is a huge movement now, the Stop API Hate Movement. We won this Webby Award for Social Movement of the Year. Um, mm -hmm. We got recognized by Time Magazine. And um, the, the BTS K-pop group's tweet, Stop API Hate, became the most retweeted post in 2021 or was it 2022 oh my goodness yeah so that <laughs> that shows the extent it's a global movement that's um huge yeah absolutely absolutely well thank god for pts <laughs> <laughs> it's always pts <laughs> no <laughs> no but uh you know i just you know from from this podcast we just want to say thank you for all of the work that you do dr jung and uh, for our listeners who are interested in your works and maybe looking to get involved with um, the Stop AAPI Hate uh, Coalition, uh, where can they go online to find all of these resources? Um, to find, uh, we've issued over 20 reports. To find our reports, um, you can go to stopaapihate.org. Um, we also have been really trying to promote ethnic studies. And so you can look at our toolkit to um, 
to um, you know draft petitions or to um, develop curriculum at the Asian American Research Initiative.org. You heard you heard it from the man himself, listeners. If you're in high school, go to SFSU and enroll in <laughs> ethnic studies. <Yeah. laughs> I'll give you an A if you just mentioned the- filling Asian podcasts. Or at least extra credit. Wow. At least extra credit. <laughs> I'll give you extra credit. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that that's is a amazing. great, that's an amazing incentive if I've ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. It was very interesting to hear about um, your work and also your personal family history, um, you know, in this area that a lot of people don't hear about. I have to be honest with you. The first time I heard about these like massacres of Chinese Americans was literally a year ago. I didn't know that there were so many of them, you know, especially in California and like uh, near the West Coast. I didn't realize that. And it just is shocking that it's not a part of U.S. history. I know, you know, like the like Black Wall Street has recently come into the news and a lot of people, I obviously wasn't aware of that either. And now we're like unearthing all of these like very large scale, um, you know, I don't even know what to call it, like crimes against ethnic, I guess, Americans. I don't even know if that I wanted to call it that, but, um, and you know, it's just like very, it's breathtaking. It's heartbreaking. And I'm, I'm really excited and proud that there are people like you out there that are like bringing light to this. Um, but thank you again for joining yeah, us. Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, by the way, five cities now have made official apologies to Chinese communities for these atrocities. Wow. Um, so again, in Monterey, the um, Pacific Grove city, they issued an apology. San Francisco, Los Angeles, wow. um, San Jose. So um, it's governments are recognizing yeah. the wrong because they have to. They have to say, we can't stand for this type of behavior moving forward. Listeners, we are so, so excited to have Anuradha Vikram on our podcast. Uh, She is an art critic, curator, author, and lecturer based in Los Angeles, California. So without further ado, listeners, please give our warm welcome to Anu. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, so as we talked about up top on the podcast, this is, uh, we're really excited about this episode because we invited uh two educators one of them being yourself and we wanted to ask them about you know some things about asian american history that the quote-unquote average asian american might not know about uh the first thing we want to ask you anu is can you tell us a little bit about your work and classes at ucla sure so i am a curator of contemporary art i also write art criticism as well as other kinds of writing and i teach global modernism at ucla Um, i have worked with a number of asian american artists and actually it was two of the asian american artists that i've worked with commissioning them as a curator who invited me to teach this class for ucla because they're both on the faculty Mm. there Um, those two artists are candace lynn and vishal jigdeo Um, So both of them, I was interested originally in working with them because a lot of my practice as a curator and as a critic is to focus on people of color perspectives and also to boost Asian Americans as well as South Asian Americans, which is my own community, um, because Mm. generally speaking, we're not that visible in the arts and culture sector. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I have always made it a 
a point of working with a lot of Asian Americans. Um, and then, of course, teaching at UCLA, it's extremely diverse, ethnically diverse, but also economically diverse. And a lot of people are the first people mm. in their families to go to college. I often have undocumented students. And so um, I was invited to update the Modernism Sequence, which is a course that they've been teaching for, I think, at least 20, maybe 40 years. Uh, that covers mm. 1800 to the present in the evolution of art history, which up until I started teaching this class was assumed to be entirely white Western art history. So my job oh, has wow. been to bring in every other perspective. And as you can imagine, that's really challenging to do because of a few reasons. One is that I still need to teach them all the basics of white Western art history, because that is, um, if I made the lingua franca of what people in the art world kind of expect people to know and know about even people who are not from the West. Mm. Right. Um, and so it's important that they have that grounding then it's also challenging because I'm a part-timer. And so mm. um, like I have a very limited research budget, you know, I'm really working off of things that I know because it's important and of interest to me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and a base of knowledge that I've built over many, many years. And then the third thing is that um, a lot of these artworks or these artists practices haven't really been very well understood. And I'm usually working from very recent material. So exhibitions that are happening right now or books that just right. came out that first like tell the story often for the first time. Um, so mm. it's really amazing to me to learn about about artists that are well known today that even maybe 10 or 15 years ago, people really didn't know about. That's like really interesting. I want to say that what you talked about when you said, you know, art history, people expect you to talk about the white Western artists. I'm in Korea right now. And I just remember, like, I feel like even here, that's like mostly what they learn about, you know, like you walk by like the art, like Hagwans and they're like, I don't know, they're like recreating these like old European <laughs> things. That's that's the sense I get here too. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting with any culture that's been colonized. I actually mm -hmm. do have an article that I assigned by a wonderful Korean American art historian named Joan Key. Mm. Uh -huh. And she writes about in the colonial period when Korea was colonized by Japan, how the artistic standards for Korea were entirely determined by Japanese art. Mm. And how then there's this kind of shift with the transition from Japanese colonial rule to American colonial rule, where the interest is suddenly in abstract expressionism as opposed to before where it was in this very formalized Japanese court style of painting that comes back from, comes from early the 18th, 19th century. That's so interesting. Oh, also, can right. I ask you something? Because I know that this yeah. is your interest, like you're saying that um, you're really focused on introducing Asian arts into your field. Was that something that you were always interested in, like when you set out, in this career or did you develop this interest after seeing that there was like a void of that? Um, you know, actually, I think it was the latter. I mean, mm -hmm. I started out wanting mm -hmm. to do art because I just was really compelled by it, by the subject matter and also by the people that I encountered. Yeah. And I really just love artists. I love artists so much. That's why I do this. Um, and then finding out that, you know, I was often the only Asian American person in the room, that mm -hmm. my perspective was often invalidated by institutions because they didn't see me as being someone who represented a real constituency of people who really care about the arts or who matter in the arts. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting how certain communities of people of color are selectively being invited into the contemporary art world, at least right. in the United States and Europe right now. 
um, and others are not so much. And a lot of that has to do with kind of whose communities are viewed to be relevant from a Western centered perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, for me as a South Asian, I became very aware of how um, the politics of South Asia occur independently of the United States interest or Europe's interest, um, mm. how we are sometimes also excluded from the conversation because we're not clearly aligned mm -hmm. with, you know, for example, you know, this is how I learned about the non-aligned movement, for example, and like the whole politics of the Cold War, which I now teach. And a lot of students, even if they're coming from places like India or China um, or in Latin America, where there was a lot of activity in um, that non-aligned movement, like they don't even know that it exists or what about it at all. And they know very little about the Cold War in general. Yeah. So it's interesting how, you know, the more I teach and the more I talk with young people, I can see the gaps that when I can fill them, then they feel so much more grounded and able to speak and work and, you know, proceed from their own perspectives. Ah, yeah. I see. I see. Wow. Anu, you're out here on the ground level doing the work from the inside. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that, yeah. that one by one kind of thing, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it's a lot of work. Right, yeah. right. It's like the theme of this episode is that things that Asian Americans don't know, and you're, you've already like sort of started to touch on why, you know, why that is that we don't know certain things. But I think it's really interesting that you found yourself in a field and you were like discovering these things and you're like, everyone must know. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like Brian well, said, you're really doing the work. But on that note, I mean, what are some common topics that come up among the students you teach about decolonizing these arts institutions? Well, you know, I think they're often just shocked at the scope of what colonization has been, mm -hmm. you know, how much, how pervasive it is in every aspect of their lives in ways that they didn't ever realize. I mean, mm -hmm. college is often when young people realize for the first time that, you know, parts of their cell phone was made in China and parts of the minerals were mined in Congo. And why do we do mining in Congo? And mm -hmm. oh, it's because of the horrible, horrible legacy of the Belgians, right? <laughs> yeah. Talking about things like that, that, you know, are really hard to take. You know, I always yeah. have students, I try to be really inclusive. I mean, I don't want anyone to feel in my class like this material isn't about them because mm. it's about all of us and it's about our interconnectedness. Especially the Belgians. People on an industrialized planet, you know, but yeah, especially <laughs> yeah. the Belgians. Right? You, they're like, <laughs> like to oh, think no, about you, them. You can leave out, you can leave out our, our, our part. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to touch on that. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting, you know, how they respond because it is all like really traumatic too. I mean, sometimes they get really upset. Right. Um, for example, a lot of my students didn't know about Tiananmen Square. And I think part of the reason for that also is because a number of them went to school in mainland China where it's not really discussed. Oh, so wow. that's interesting. Wow. When they come to American universities and they get a very different view of history than they might have had before. Sorry, before we move on to the, the main question, I guess, can we touch on the unaligned movement? Folks are aware of the Cold War, which is the period after the Second World War, when the um, in the aftermath of the United States and the Soviet Union mm -hmm. being a lot allied in their um, in their defeat of Nazi Germany and the Axis powers, the territories of um, not only uh, conquered Europe but also the sphere of influence of Europe as a whole was basically split up between the victorious United States and the Soviet Union. So this resulted, everybody's familiar, I think, with, or maybe they're not anymore actually familiar with East and West Berlin, mm. where mm -hmm. the city was actually divided between the United States and Soviet control, but also Europe itself, Western Europe essentially fell to the United States 
to control and then Central and Eastern Europe was given to the Soviet Union, became the Soviet sphere of influence. Now at that time, and particularly come the 1950s, you also see a lot of the countries that were colonized by Europe mm -hmm. prior mm -hmm. to the Second World War, gaining independence because Europe, European countries became weaker during the war and because mm -hmm. of the war, and then right. it was easier for people to enact their colonial revolutions. So, right. um, you know, we often say, for example, in India, that you wouldn't have had a peaceful transition from British rule to Indian independence, which Gandhi was so credited for, you know, his peaceful nonviolent movement, if not for the fact that the British were so drained by being blitzed by German bombs all the time right. that they had to give the Indians what they wanted because they <laughs> couldn't really maintain the strength to keep their power anymore. Right. Yeah. So this is why after the Second World War, you see lots of countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America throwing off colonial leadership and entering what we call the post-colonial period. Right. Now, a lot of those countries, they didn't want to suddenly go back to being effectively colonized or economically colonized by either the United States or the Soviet Union. And so they banded together in the 1960s and 70s into something that we call the non-aligned movement. And uh. those countries held their own conferences. They kind of created their own mini UN mm. kind of body right. that would gather regularly in different cities in what we today call the global south and it was meant to generate economic investment and cooperation between these countries so that they could create a global economy that would not be controlled by the u.s or by soviet money um, and then unfortunately in the late 1970s for a variety of reasons it all fell apart right um and in the 1980s it was kind of erased from popular memory right See, I did not know that, and I feel yeah. like very dumb for not knowing that. But that, I mean, it's like very visible. And I think what you were saying, even though I didn't know that uh, about the history of the non-aligned movement, I was, I kind of feel like the subconscious, like, um, energy of those countries not being liked by the West. Do you know? Right? Like, I don't know if that's. Yeah. And I was like, I never. Knew yeah. I feel like that's I how I found out about it, too. You right, know, was that right. I was like, why do why are, you know, South Asians never really welcome here? Why are we always kind of treated with this like instrumentalized way of like, you know, oh, well, sometimes we like you if you're Pakistani or Afghan only because we're rescuing you from your own right. people. You mm. know, but if you're Indian or if you're Iranian, for example, like we don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah. Um, you know, this kind of weird way of feeling like you're being used by American power for its own means, mm. yeah. even when you're being represented, which I think is something that all people of color in the U.S. feel. But I think those of us who come right. from non-aligned countries, we feel it even more because we're more aware of it, maybe. Wow. I, th I think so that there's like some sort of like government political propaganda that I'm picking up on. Do you know what I mean? That like I don't I'm not even aware of, you know, because I feel like even like Ryan and I are Korean and there's like an overarching, like vague sense that Korea is okay with America. Do you, do you know what I mean? And it's it's right, like maybe right. it's like some sort of like, I don't know. I don't know. I kind of feel like everybody's that way now, though. And I think that's why it's so nobody knows anything about the non-aligned movement. Right. You know, mm. I really didn't know very much about it. I kind of knew vaguely wow. that it had existed. Yeah. Probably mostly because my own grandfather was in the U.N., and he was going to places like oh. Brazil in the 1960s and 70s oh. doing UN work. 
Um, and so, and it was this kind of like wow. wonderful time when it was communist in Brazil, but also like really prosperous. And, you know, Brazilians and Indians were going to be naturally friends because they were both these big non-Western in the kind of cultural sense countries. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, there was some, some kind of sense of that in like my family history, but I also didn't really understand it. Never learned about it in school at mm. all. Um, wow. And it was actually because of an artwork by a Bangladeshi American artist named Naeem Mohammed, who's based in New York. He made an artwork uh, It was based on a book by a professor named Vijay Prasad, mm. who's at Trinity College at Hartford. And Vijay Prasad is an expert on the non-aligned movement. He's written wow. a book called The Darker Nations. That's about that. So after I saw that film by Naeem, then I went and read Vijay's book. And then I started assigning sections of Vijay's book to my students so that they would understand what this totally different kind of framing of global power looked like, you know, and it's quite utopian. Right. That's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea about any of this. I, like, I I, this no is idea. the first time I've heard about the non-aligned <laughs> movement. <laughs> um, wow. But I mean, wow. let's just let's just uh, dive into dive deeper into these uh, uncovered topics. I mean, as we mentioned up top, we wanted this episode to be about uncovering a few topics in Asian American history that you know, quote unquote, the average Asian American might not know about. Uh, what topic would you like to share? Well, I was hoping to share a little bit about the artist Ruth Asawa today, who's, mm-hmm. I think, a well-known Asian American artist, but one that people don't know much about. Mm. Well, OK, so I, I think, you know, Ruth Asawa was in the press Again, sort of recently, when um, there was a feature on Gwyneth Paltrow, and she was posing in what was supposed to be her apartment Mm -hmm. with an object that looked like a Ruth Azawa, but it actually wasn't a genuine Ruth Azawa. So that was a reason why her name kind of came back up in the popular consciousness recently. And that prompted me to actually learn a few more things about her that I thought were interesting to share. So one of the things I thought was really interesting was that, in fact, this was not the first time that that happened to Ruth Asawa's work. Mm. Actually, Vogue magazine did the same thing with her actual work in the 1950s in a gallery installation of her work where Vogue posed fashion models in front of her objects as if they were just decoration. Mm. Um, And that kind of feeds into a bigger trend in her marginalization, but that I argue in my curatorial work is actually a way of marginalizing women and women of color, particularly in the arts, which is to call Mm -hmm. Azawa's work craft Mm. because it involves weaving, right? So weaving is of course a craft practice, um, but weaving wire is a unique technique that Ruth Azawa actually invented herself. It was a kind of crocheting technique, in fact, that she was using that she developed. And another thing that I read was that her daughter had said, her daughter has really been the person who's carried forward Asawa's legacy mm. after her death. Um, and she said that she used to teach workshops where she would teach people how to do this wire crocheting technique, but she had to stop because too many people were just knocking off Azawa works and making copies oh, of Azawa works. Okay, so that's how one so of these... there's a sense in which she doesn't really own her own intellectual property. Right. Ah. Yeah. She's the pattern that's maker, like, right? Well, I mean, the popular consciousness. Yeah, I mean, that's like... I mean, I know that this is probably something that you discuss so much in your field, but it's it's just how like Asian art is seen, like what you said with the weaving, you know, you'll you'll go into like a rich white person's apartment like Gwyneth and she'll have like an African 
woven tapestry or something, you know, like, and you just see that as like, oh, it's like this thing from Africa. You don't see it as like a piece of art that an artist created versus like if you saw like a Picasso, that's a Picasso, you know? Yeah, I think one of the big differences is that um, when people talk about white artists, they talk about white artists making art with their hands and their mind. Well, when they talk about artists of color, they usually just talk about artists of color making art with their hands. Yeah. Mm. They don't, yeah, they don't give them the respect of like the intellectual aspect of it. That is so. Yeah, they're not viewed as creative. They're viewed yeah. as making something that's traditional and therefore a copy of something else mm. with no maker. And because it has no maker, no, no inventor, maker. it's okay to steal it. Right, yeah. right. Wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So, Especially in the time when she came up, she not only she was, you know, deal had overcome the status of being a woman artist, but on top of that, she's an Asian American coming up in a scene where there probably were very few artists who looked like her. And uh, one thing I found interesting in um, in her history is that she was um, persecuted in, in internment camp, like in her teenage years, which I felt that in an interview, like she somewhat downplayed that a lot and i, I don't know mm. if that's because she wanted to like avoid being like reduced to just that or if she maybe she had to in order to like save face in such a white dominated industry you know it's so interesting how her internment shapes her career mm. so yes ruth Asawa was interned uh for 18 months in the 1940s during the relocation um, under the, the Japanese Relocation Act. Mm -hmm. um, she was, first her father was arrested and he was interned separately from the family. Then um, about a year later, Asawa and her mother and her siblings were interned. Mm. Uh, they spent about five months living at the Santa Anita racetrack, which is just east of Los Angeles. It's an active racetrack. And she described that there was still horse hair from the horse's manes and tails stuck in the crevices of the mm -hmm. stalls that it smelled like manure mm. and they lived there for five months before they were relocated to um arkansas to mm. the rural relocation center in arkansas so now hundreds or thousands of miles rather from their home in san francisco mm -hmm. um now strangely though this proved to be an opportunity for ruthasawa because at the rural relocation center there were three japanese american Disney animators who were also interned, mm. wow. who were actually, at least one of them was, I believe, working for Disney still from the camp. What? Whoa. And they also, yeah, his name uh, was James Tanaka. And I read that wow. he was actively employed by Disney while he was at the camp. I can't confirm whether the other two men also were. Right. Um, but Whoa. they're both, they're all three were, you know, very well respected working animators at the time. And so they were teaching art classes in the camp and no. Asawa took art classes from them wow. and because yeah. she was raised on a farm she actually didn't have time to cultivate her art practice as yeah. a farming kid mm. so in the camp she strangely enough had time to develop an artistic practice and eventually she was given a scholarship by a group wow. called the Japanese American Student Relocation Council to go to a teacher's college in Wisconsin mm. and so she was released from the camp which um, just to give you a sense of comparison, you know, Isamu Noguchi, right. who was also Japanese-American yeah. um, and was mixed race, white and Japanese, he was already quite a famous designer and sculptor at the time of the internment, and he volunteered 
to be interned wow. because he was so patriotic that he really believed that this was the right thing to do. Yikes. Mm. Um, and forgive me, I'm neglecting to remember which camp he went to, but he didn't like it very much. He found it awful. He thought he was going to teach kids art, right. wasn't able to. Mm-hmm. And then he tried to leave and they wouldn't let him leave. Oh my yeah. gosh. So Asaba was actually able to leave, be discharged, um, I think at least a year before her family was able to leave because she got the scholarship well, to the teacher's college. I think this is so, I think the idea that somebody would be in an internment camp still working sort of like remote for a business and the fact that there was this, you know, this other famous designer that volunteered to go in and stuff. I think that's just such a mind-blowing um, example of the rest of America being able to accept something that is like so violent and cruel. Because, you know, we talk about that today and this day, like how much are, are we going to put up with this? You know, we hear about these things that happen to other people living in America, you know, like I know it's everything gets so like out of hand but like the children in cages like discourse and things like that and how much are we going to just let happen and it's like the answer is probably a lot more than we are willing to admit like there are people working in the office of disney knowing that their co-worker is like inter- sorry i don't know why i'm getting emotional but like you know like knowing that their co-workers intern in an internment camp and they're just like la 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 coming back and doing my little animations with my friend who's in a camp somewhere like that's like, that's like kind of blowing my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's insane to think of. And I think the, the craziest part is that actually that was probably Disney being generous because most right. people who were sent to the camps lost yeah. their livelihood completely. They lost everything. Yeah, A lot of people lost their homes. They lost their farms. You know, even I, I lived in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area for a few years and we would pass on the freeway on, in Richmond, mm. in the East Bay, these abandoned greenhouses that are just dilapidated collapsing those were all rose gardens that were maintained by japanese american families and after the internment they never got their property back it was just allowed to collapse into the earth wow and then you know here in la a lot of people um were living in communities with african-americans and as they you know oftentimes even people kept black families kept the properties up and maintained Mm. them so that they could be returned to the japanese families that had left um, and when they came back, everybody got eminent domain to build the freeway and they all lost their houses. Wow. Wow. <sighs> dark. Gosh. It's such a dark history. And then imagine like being in school, you know, with Ruth and being like, hey, cool. Where are you, like, where are you coming from? It's like the internment <laughs> camp. Like, you know, like it's so bizarre. That that was just, and you can only imagine she was the only one, right? So yeah. she didn't want to talk about it. And I wanted to share too that with the teachers' <laughs> college too, they wouldn't even let her be a teacher. They wouldn't give her the oh, certificate wow. oh my because gosh. she was Japanese American. Wow. And so ironically, right? But every time that something like this, so discriminatory, so racist, happened to her, hmm. for Asawa, it turned into an opportunity. Hmm. Um, you know, like learning how to become an artist from these Disney animators in the camp. Because she was not able to complete her degree at the teacher's college, she basically got talked by a couple of artist friends into going to Black Mountain College. Mm. And then she was able to study with all of the greats of mid-century contemporary art under Joseph Albers, the Bauhaus artist who mentored her right. and trained her to be a real working artist. Um, <sighs> but even after that, you know, reviews of her work would refer to her as a housewife. Oh. Yikes. 
And look so at she gl- kind of gave up after the 50s and she right. didn't show her work very much. It's just a lot of combination of a lot, a lot of discrimination that, you know, people go through, not only as like people of color, but women as well, just compounded. And of course, Gwyneth Paltrow is always in the middle of it. She's always doing something wrong. Well, now she's like a lightning rod, right, for Batman. Well, now there's like a freaking replica of her work. She's like the Belgian Paltrow's yeah. home. <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to talk about the shame real quickly, you know, because the thing is, I think people still have a lot of shame about the internment. People who were interned don't talk about it, right? Just like I think, you know, this is right. something that a lot of different kinds of Asian people can relate to is this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, because of what happened in the countries that we come from in the 20th century, which is often very horrible and very violent. Um, and most of us have, if not parents, then grandparents who lived through these awful experiences and they don't talk about them. They don't share them with us. You know, it's often yeah. us, the second or third generation after who go and do the historical digging to find out what happened right. because they don't want to burden us that way. They don't want all those hard feelings dumped yeah. on us. Mm. They want us to be successful and upbeat and American, you know, and utopian. Yeah. Yeah. I think Brian and I were talking to somebody that was like a listener of this podcast because we have we have like these Zoom hangouts. Um, and she was talking about how gra- her grandparents are ashamed of being interned. And I, I thought that that was so sad. Like something bad happened to them and they're uh, ashamed of that. And I'm like, I mean, it makes sense. Like I think e- for Asian people, me saying that they probably know what I'm talking what i mean but it's just very sad to feel that they feel ashamed for being victimized you know and i also think it's really hard for japanese americans because um the japanese people in japan have no concept of this Hmm. oh yeah so for example when japanese americans got really upset about the mfa the museum of fine arts in boston did this show of the Impressionists and they sh- they had this kimono that people could try on and pose in the kimono. And it was based on a painting. Um, was it a Degas painting? I think it might've been a Degas that was of his wife wearing a kimono that they were showing. Mm. And, you know, the Impressionists were very Orientalist. They were, they mm-hmm. appropriated a lot of different visual ideas and I just art practices from Japanese artists. So, um, Japanese American artists were protesting the MFA mm-hmm. and the show was actually a show of Hokusai and it had come from Japan and the Japan, they were, you know, some of the publications were talking to people at the museum in Japan and people were saying at the museum in Japan, like we have no idea what people are upset. You know, mm. we don't mind yeah. if people try and keep on yep. We want to share our culture, you know? And I think Asian Americans often find that we're aware of a lack of respect in that receiving of the shared culture that people yeah. from the motherland or fatherland don't they don't know no yeah right. they're like you guys are over like why are you being so sensitive i've heard that from like right and right. also like they may also actually value whiteness as a yes. value to align with more than we yep. do because yes. we see the dark side of it they align more with white americans than asian americans i think I think that's a huge product of the 80s. And I think that was a big push that was yeah. actually about destroying the influence of the non-aligned movement, which was oh. very much about identifying politically as brown and black. See, I oh. told you, I feel like there's some what? sort of propaganda, <laughs> right? <laughs> Obviously there is. I knew yeah, well, I mean, you know, the CIA Divided was in all this. these countries toppling regimes and whatnot. CIA. I mean, I don't know yeah. if it's a conspiracy. It's just like an agenda. It's true. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It wow. makes sense. Jeez, I so feel like many... one of the Paltrow's in the CIA. I'm sorry. I'll, I'm, that's, where I, that's where I lost everybody. But like 
Every time she does something, it's problematic. There's a microchip saying. in that jade egg. I'm telling you. <laughs> you know what? You know what? You know what? <laughs> um, Sorry. Well, well, Anu, uh, you know, first of all, thank you so much for just freaking decolonizing all of our minds here because all so much of this information yeah. I did not know about and neither. feel feel quite dumb but for good reason because this is more of an excuse for me to you know do my research now and learn all about this but we'd love to learn more about stop discrimination which is a project you helped found and can you tell us a little bit about it how did it come about and what is the collective focusing on right now Yes. So um, I wouldn't actually say that I helped to found it. Okay. I advised perhaps on its mm. founding, but I didn't actually join until it had been going for a year. And I actually want to talk about that. Bless you. Thank you. Um, I actually want to talk about why that is, because, you know, when Stop Discrimination was originally founded, it was founded in the summer of 2020. Mm. And it was um, three artists slash art workers who originally instigated the project. Um, Annika Yee, who is based in New York and does amazing work with insects yes. and live animals, really super interesting biological work. Christine Y. Kim, who is a curator at the Tate, mm -hmm. um, but based in Los Angeles, who's Korean-American, started at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, and Kenneth Tam, who's a Chinese-American artist in New York, who I've also worked with very closely. So Christine actually reached out to me. Mm. Um, she's just a great advocate for Asian-American curators. You know, she was mentored by Thelma Golden, who has almost single-handedly created an influx of African-American curators in the United States Contemporary Art Museums. Mm -hmm. And um, Christine is one of the few Asian-Americans who's in that network. And so she's really very generous about helping others of us mm -hmm. to gain visibility. And she reached out to me. Um, but, you know, I was coming from a very different place than the people in that collective because they were responding to, you know, being attacked in the street, verbally attacked, and sometimes more aggressively than that mm -hmm. by, you know, people that they were just, you know, on the basis of looking East Asian, right? right? And yeah. on this kind of this coronavirus rhetoric that Trump was spreading, uh, calling it the Chinese virus, right? Yeah. And being extremely violent in his language that was leading to people being violent in their language and their actions on the street, right. um, which was something that was happening acutely to people of East Asian origin at that moment and not really happening acutely mm -hmm. to people of South and Southeast Asian origin in the same way. And it was happening to them often for the first time. Mm. And meanwhile, for people of South Asian descent, this started happening to us after 9-11. Right. So we have about 20 years of experience and also organizing after that right. to draw on. So it was just kind of in a very different place mm. from where that group was at that yeah. moment where, you know, Annika and Christine had both been personally in situations where they felt violently attacked. And Ken had actually started collecting a spreadsheet of people's reports of these kinds of incidents nationwide that they were sharing with him. Mm. So we, you know, um, at that time I didn't join, but I was a signatory on their first letter, mm. right. which was an open letter against uh, discrimination against Asian Americans. Uh, and then I joined in 2021 when the group kind of shifted mm. and became more of a working group as opposed to a kind of a responding to outside stimulus, stimulus yeah. kind of group, you know, right. um, being reactive. We're now shifting to trying to be more proactive and um, controlling our message and our mission more. So we got some funding from the Ford Foundation. 
to do a planning period. We're doing strategic planning right now to figure out how best to reach our goals, which are, you know, to really be a supportive environment for Asian Americans who work in arts and culture to have a safe space to talk about experiences that we have of discrimination or exclusion, to network and build resources, to create our own institutions, our own opportunities, um, and to connect with other Asian Americans in the arts and activism and learn from them and share resources and really be like a global pan-Asian solidarity organization. So we're a very small team. It's myself, Margaret Lou Clinton, Astrid Parekh, Lee Painter Kim, Jen Dillis Reyes, Ellie Lee, Jerome Reyes, and we have an anonymous member. We have a bunch of other members at large who weigh in and advise, but that group of people really is doing the bulk of the day-to-day work right now. Mm. Um, And we're doing everything from editing articles about our experiences and our platform to we organized, co-organized a Black Asian Trans Power Rally in Los Angeles. We organized a virtual brunch for Asian Americans in the arts and activism to share and compare notes and we bought everybody lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that came out of that that we're really excited about in our efforts to develop into an organization that can shape policy and enact social change is our brunch participants said to us that we should really be thinking about these two words, futurism and abolition. So that's mm-hmm. what we're focused on right now. For our listeners, if you would like to learn more or get involved, you can do so at stopdiscrimination.org. And um, Anu, uh, before we let you go, where can our listeners f- learn more about your work and find you online? Well, um, I collect all of my curatorial projects, my writing projects under um, my my header is Curative Projects. Mm-hmm. So that's www.curativeproject.net. And I picked that name because my parents, like most South Asians in the arts or in any you know professional class occupation, my parents are doctors. <laughs> and um, I wanted to think about what the connections might be between doing cultural work and social cures, right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I came up with this in 2005. And after the Trump years, I feel like it's just so much more relevant and acute mm-hmm. the way in which we have like a social illness and we need a social cure. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of what I do. So folks can look at my website. And of course, I can send y'all links for for wh- wherever you host that kind of thing, right. um, along with maybe some links to learn more about Ruth Azawa. Um, there's a great New York Times article from 2020 that contains tons of biographical information about her and her family and some wonderful photographs of her by Imogen Cunningham, um, a very sexy one with red lipstick and also a really cute one where five of her six children are playing in her art. Um, so I would be happy to share that as well um, and spread the word about this amazing artist who also, I forgot to mention, she also, you know, in her spare time, right? Um, no, she built uh, the curriculum for the San Francisco Unified School District's arts program mm-hmm. and founded what is this today known as the Ruth Azawa School for the Arts. Mm. So she was very active in San Francisco. I think I've known about her for a long time because I lived in San Francisco for many years and I did organizing with another Asian American arts group called Curdy Street Workshop up there. So I was familiar with a lot of Asian American histories that actually people outside of San Francisco or California 
mm. really aren't familiar with at all from the internment to the Asian American movement in the 1970s for civil rights that was modeled very much on the Black Panther Party. Well, that was like, so I have to say, I'm like Brian said, I'm so blown away by all the information that I learned in such a short period of time. I'm sure all of our listeners are also, you know, so I'm sure some most of them are know about some of the things that you mentioned, but if they're like <laughs> us, this is, has been a very uh, fruitful episode where I, I just learned so much. And I just want to thank you again for sharing all your your knowledge on our podcast. Well, thank you so much. I'm a big fan of your work and your podcast and um, been sharing with people that I'm going to be on it and people are very excited. So I think the word's getting around about you. Um, Congratulations. Keep doing it. Thank you for having me. Thank thank you, you, Anu. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's like, Whenever you say the and we're back, I feel like that's like from a TV show or something. Was there like a TV show? I think that's what like, late night hosts would say after a commercial break. But instead... Oh, that's what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Instead, I just said it after hearing two professors share their <laughs> wealth of knowledge. I'm like, okay, we're back from our fucking commercial break here. Back to the good shit. <laughs> Right. I, you know what? I think you should keep doing that because I feel like you're just practicing to become a late night host, which that you will become. You're going to manifest that. Oh, Jimmy Fallon, I'm coming for you. And we yeah, all know Jimmy Fallon scared. listens to this podcast. He's scared. He's shaking in his boots. Shaking in his boots. Oh, um, well, that was a great episode. It was very emotional for me. Like I said, I don't know what I feel. I just sometimes I feel like I don't know why, just something about hearing those even like vague words. I don't even think there was anything said that was like that graphic, especially with Dr. Jong. He was just like, Asian people are getting attacked. And I was like, (laughs) 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 I don't know why. It really made me emotional. It is is emotional. It is emotional. These conversations always remind me of how much how little I know about our own history. And when you really yeah. dive into the nitty gritty, I don't know how much, a lot of it is because it was hidden from us. Yeah. I see. I'm getting you know? emotional again, Brian. <laughs> so sad. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why. It just makes just like vaguely thinking about it. Like some old yeah. Chinese people, like our, you know, like our grandparents, you know, getting, getting things that are horrible happening to them and then we just never even hear about it yeah oh god it is sad keep it together well (laughs) (laughs) listeners if you made it this far thank you for supporting the podcast and uh you know as a reminder support us on patreon and yeah that's that's basically it we hope you enjoyed this episode we know it's a little bit different but You know, I'm I'm proud of this episode. Yeah, and it was very interesting. Yeah. So again, thank you everyone, and we'll see you all here next week. Bye everyone. Bye. If you made it this far into the podcast, you know what time it is. It's time to do some Patreon shout-outs. Just as a reminder, the best way to support this podcast is through Patreon at patreon.com slash feeling Asian. Go check it out. We have different subscription tiers, but any donation amount gets you a shout out on the podcast, which is what we're about to do right now. First shout out goes out to Hee Kim. Hee 
Just guessing from your name alone. I think you work in academia. You are more specifically studying to get a PhD in art history from an Ivy League university. And your parents are very, very proud of you. So thank you and best of luck with your PhD. And uh, I foresee tenureship in your future. Uh, next shout out goes out to Cornelia Ding. Uh, similar to Hiwon, I am getting very smart energy, except uh, you are good with numbers. Yeah, Cornelia, I'm gonna guess that you are a quant at a hedge fund, and that is fucking cool, and I'm jealous. Uh, that is in that is my secret. Uh, if I ha if I could in, in a past life. Or in an alternate universe, I think I would have wished to become a quant at a hedge fund, just cranking numbers and developing algorithms. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you for supporting the pod. Uh, next shout out goes out to Kamari Raphael Hazward. Kamari, friend of the pod, friend of mine. Kamari, thank you for supporting. Uh, yeah, I guess I already know what your deal is. You are, for those of you listening, Kamari is an incredibly talented artist uh, who um, specializes in photography and direction. So go check out his work. Uh, it's Kamari Raphael Hasward. Find him on Instagram. Give him a follow. Go support all of his work. And thank you again, Kamari. Uh, next shout out goes out to Crystal Seals. Crystal Seals. Crystal, I think you're a pastry chef in Denmark. And orange is your least favorite color. I don't know what compelled me to say that, but I'm feeling pretty confident about it. So, Crystal, you make a mean chocolate croissant. And in your bakery, you will, you would never in a million years see the color orange because uh, that color gives you vertigo. <laughs> um, next shout out goes out to oh, last shout out of this week goes out to Trang Do. Trang, I think you're a botanist, and you're incredibly good with plants, which is redundant because I think you need to be good with plants if you're a botanist. <laughs> and that's a siren that just went by my street. Um, yeah, you got a green thumb. And you're legit amazing with plants. In fact, it pains you to go to bougie plant shops because uh, all you hear is misinformation and bad advice. So, yeah. Ooh, maybe you specialize with fungi? Do botanists deal with fungi? Mycelium? I don't know. <laughs> In any case, Trong, thank you. And thank you again to everyone who supported the podcast. And thank you all who do support the podcast. And thank you for listening. And once again, you can support us at patreon.com slash feelingasian. Thank you, everyone.